Hi, this is Matt, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey, welcome back. Um, so I've got another one of the edits from the Doc Watson episode. Um, yeah, as I've said before, those were so long, uh, like almost five hours worth of stuff, and people just don't have time necessarily to listen to all of that. So I'm continuing to pull out some of the, the bits from that and put them out as standalone episodes. Um, I've already done one with John McEwen from Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. There's one from Jack Lawrence. There's one from T. Michael Coleman. But this is the one with Tim O'Brien. Um, I had a fascinating chat with Tim. It was, I think, the last interview I recorded for the episode. Um, but really interesting just Tim's such a great musician and such a thoughtful musician too and uh, yeah I really enjoyed this chat and I think you will too so here it is here is my chat with Tim O'Brien about Doc Watson and when it, when I spoke to Scott Nygaard for this a few weeks ago he said you should talk to Tim O'Brien because in some ways he's like most naturally following in Doc's footsteps because of the range of music that he plays. And Scott sort of drew a very definite parallel between you as artists because of the range, even though you're sort of considered traditional folk musicians, like the range of music yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Well, Doc is definitely considered traditional folk music too, but if you look at his repertoire, it goes all over the place and he, you know, he, uh, He'd sing uh, Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues. He would sing uh, Rockabilly songs by Elvis. He would sing uh, Summertime, you know. He would sing, uh, you know, that's George Gershwin. So he'd sing all kinds of things. And then contemporary folk things, you know, Gentle on My or not Gentle, uh, Last Thing on My Mind, you know, that kind of thing by Tom Paxton. In addition to the stuff that he grew up with is that his father-in-law played the fiddling and uh, ballad singing and stuff from around there in Deep Gap and um, and just country music, you know, just what we heard on the radio. But it's interesting what, what Ralph Rinsler did, which he kind of woke him up and said, look, you occupy a special position and you, you really could make a difference for everybody here. And um, it was really great that he took up that, you know, he took up Ralph's idea. You know, he shows up to the recording session with an electric guitar and they go, we can't use this. He says, well, this is what I have. What is wrong with this? And he gets this sort of crash course on where he he is and who he is within the scene, you know, from Ralph. And going to New York, I think, is any kind of good artist. uh, it's It's an important thing to go there and to have people hear you and see what you do but also for you to see what other people are doing and get a perspective on it. And um, he was a smart enough guy and mature enough before he ever did any of that stuff that he was able to put it all together and uh, slyly opposes this traditional musician and put this stuff forward. It's uh, he did, he did bring traditional music. So uh, right to the front for people because of his delivery and because of his, you know, his technique he wasn't, uh, you know, there are other people that have the great technique like Bill Monroe, but they were a little more strident in the way they presented it, and it was harder to latch on to. Doc was really f- like a fuzzy couch that you could sit on and take this stuff in. Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because there's lots of musicians who are as comfortable in their musical skin as Doc Watson, but to have that and also be open to suggestion and 
taking a different route does require, like you say, a kind of maturity and a kind of openness. Yeah, he was older than the folkies uh, that were coming up, you know, and um, he wasn't that old. Uh, So it's kind of like, I don't know, it was he was approachable. Um, Like, it's interesting, you know, people like Earl Scruggs uh, looked him up because they know, obviously, of, of his talent. They... You know, Flatten Scruggs recording with him, with him is, was a big thing. That's the first record I had of Doc Watson, the first one I could find. But, uh, you know, my first glimpse of Doc was on a folk music uh, festival broadcast on TV from Berkeley, California. And he was completely solo. They kind of brought him up. Somebody guided him up to his microphone and got him there and sort of set the microphones. And he was off and running with his harmonica rack and flat-picking guitar. And it was just, like, so stunning and so immediate to me. I had heard some bluegrass kind of stuff, but not, like, lead guitar like that. And um, it just uh, it made everything made sense all of a sudden. Was it... Um the sort of range of music or the, the delivery, or I mean, it's possible, maybe impossible to pinpoint one thing that really drew you to the music at that point, but there's something to have made such a clear impression on you. Is there anything particular that stood out? Yeah. The guitar was really the thing that drew me in because uh, I was, uh, I was really interested in, in, I was playing the guitar, you know, two, two hours a day anyway. And um, to listen to that stuff and try to learn it was really great. And it was, uh, it was a mountain of technique to jump onto. And, uh, but there was, you know, it was obvious that was a, a, the right avenue for me. It was, uh, I felt like I could approach it. It wasn't forbidding. And the other thing about Doc, too, is like when you hear those solo records, uh, you go, oh, that's all you need uh, to pr- put a thing across, a guitar and a voice, you know. And, he, you know, he played the harmonica on the rack, and he was one of the better ones to do that. But really, the guitar and the voice, you know, Dylan was that way. You know, you'd hear Dylan, you'd hear Pete Seeger with his one instrument and, and his singing, and it was, you know, come across. But with Doc, it was like a whole band there. It was like a really beautiful thing. The other things were like that were were some of the ragtime guitar players, you know, that you could hear. And I got into Reverend Gary Davis and his kind of thing. Um, but I was just kind of, you know, I was kind of new at everything and I was, it was a big, uh, I was just on the tip of, of several icebergs <laughs> and, uh, doc was the, the one that was the nicest, friendliest iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's really interesting what you said earlier about, um, about the approachability of doc compared to some of the sort of the other players sort of about Bill Monroe being a bit more strident and, you know, Doc having something that could appeal to most ears. Because I've, I've heard you say before, um, I think it might have been on the the Grey Fox documentary, Bluegrass Journey, is it called? About yeah. bluegrass, bluegrass being a strong spice, you know, and it is. Yeah. And it's, it's not to yeah. everybody's ear, but somebody like Doc who can take all the similar source material and, and just put it across in such an approachable way. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true that uh, it's... You know, bluegrass is like your first. If, well, if you listen to Bill Monroe or Stanley Brothers to begin with, it's like really strong whiskey. And you, you, the first time you have whiskey, you go, "Why would anybody drink this?" 
of course, there's an effect that it gives you after the fact, after drinking it, but then you get into the taste later and the subtleties of it. And that's what that kind of bluegrass is. It's really hard. And some of the blues is that way too. It's kind of just in jazz. It's kind of like, how do you, why would anybody go, go for this? And then you gradually develop a taste for it. But Doc was like, um, his singing especially was really uh, welcoming. You know, it was really, uh, he had this beautiful sound. And uh, he had a kind of a tenor, but it wasn't like a real high nasal tenor. It was just, um, I don't know. He was he was into pop music, you know, and he, he probably shaped his sound around that stuff. And he... And maybe, I don't know how much Ralph Rensler had to do with how he shaped any of that stuff, but I think Ralph reminded reminded him to keep it folksy, but I think he used his just general sensibilities uh, to shape it the way, you know, to present it the way he did. Yeah, and that's sort of one of the things that's come across most from talking to people for this podcast is just the, like, the things people talk about are the sort of directness of delivery and the range of music but also that just that thing of being able to take pretty much anything and make it sound like dot watson he was striving to be uh, a regular guy he didn't want to he really did not want to dwell on his handicap and i think that was part of the thing that you really respected him for right off the bat here's this guy from the hills and he plays this whole music but he's a, obviously a, a brilliant you know, musician and artist, a great developed personality. And, um, you know, like I say, he was a smart guy. It's sort of disarming when you first hear it. It's like, I don't know why, but I just loved it. And uh, I've tried to figure it out in the years since, you know, what it was. And that's as close as I can see is it's just the guitar drew me, drew me in. And it was just so easy and comfortable compared to a lot of uh, Roots music. Has that um, has that sort of been an influence on you in your career? Because you, you know, your repertoire is pretty vast. Whether it's Scots Irish music or bluegrass or country or pop, you know, there's there's a real range there. But it all you can put on any Tim O'Brien record, and it sounds like Tim O'Brien. Is that something you think Doc maybe had a hand in as well? I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, I the actually Thelonious Monk has uh, he he wrote down some rules for his musicians. And one of them was the guy who sounds the most like himself is the genius. And, uh, you got to get a sense of who you are as an artist to make, to make a headway. You have to have a certain direction or you just spin 360 degrees around in circles and don't go very far. So I don't know, doc, like I say, he had that, sense of himself and what his mission was in a way. And uh, I've always tried to find my own sound. Another template that, that works for me stylistically as a songwriter, singer songwriter and multi-instrumentalist is, is John Hartford, who always was looking for a new thing. And he was often kind of uh, his mind would wander into different territory but he always kept his feet in the tradition and uh, he was a little more extreme than doc, a little more, you know, more uh, fairy dust than doc and more, you know, 
ethereal or something. He was earthy, but it's kind of just a different thing. But, uh, you know, some people like that, um, Ry Cooter comes to mind. He has a style. He borrows from everything, but it always sounds like Ry Cooter. And that's that's the thing that I want to, you know, strive for as, a, as an artist is to have an identity. You know, that's songwriting is part of that. And um, the, the kind of music you do and what you like to do, it's a product of what you're good at and what, you know, what you're not good at and uh, kind of chipping away at the weak points and emphasizing the strong points too. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that was part of Doc's modus operandi as well. I think that's really interesting because I think when you start playing music, you desperately want to sound like other people that you admire. And the thing that the, the hardest thing maybe in music is to be completely you. Yeah. But that's sort of the point of being you is to be you because nobody else can do it. But it's the hardest thing to get to. Yeah. Well, you know, nobody is completely original and also nobody is completely traditional. They just can't be. I mean, I can play Deep River Blues pretty much like, seems like pretty much like Doc did on the Doc Watson on stage record. That's where I learned it from. But it doesn't sound like him at all. And, uh, I just can't. It just doesn't work. And um, also, I can't leave it behind. You know, it's just, it's there. <laughs> it's, uh, you just get on and play. And you are, you are, you, uh, every person has their own thing that they can and will do if they set their mind to it or if they, you know, you just put your attention on things and it, it finally emerges. But it's a lesson it's hard learn to learn that nobody's completely original and nobody's completely traditional. It's just, you're, we're all on a path of tradition that's going forward. It's just, uh, that's the way it is. And it's really, um, I think that point that you made about doc being pegged as a traditional or folk musician, right? Actually doc's pretty progressive musician in many ways. So many yes. of the people that we look back to as being, cornerstones of the tradition of bluegrass string band music like the bill monroe's and the Earl script they were progressive musicians they weren't just they were doing what come before them yeah yeah bill monroe's a real radical earl scruggs was a real consummate artist uh, radical too with his he was just uh he took something and made it so smooth and so palatable presented it on a plate to you that you could you couldn't uh refuse and uh yeah, those guys were um, Bill Monroe's. I think his his radical music was really exciting to people, and uh, that the tempo and the you know the virtuosity of that of those players, Scruggs and and uh, and and Monroe himself and uh, Chubby Wise on the fiddle, you know that that and the rhythm section, everything was pretty dang tidy. It was pretty world class. They had just kind of. They had the, there was no fat on it, and nobody was holding anybody back. And uh, I think that excitement is one of the things about old time music and uh, bluegrass music is kind of a, a hyped up version of folk music, as what what is the Alan Lomax called it, blue, uh, folk music in overdrive. It's uh, you know the fast picking is really kind of uh, a real. Uh, piece of sugar that you can, you can, you want to take a bite of. And, um, so Doc, when he, you know, play that Brown's Ferry blues, you know, he just, uh, play the hell out of the guitar and you just, you go, God, that's, how can anybody play the many notes? 
And, you know, some run, he'd do that chromatic run where he'd go, all the way, you know, from C up to C or back, you know, or backwards. And he'd go, I didn't know there were that many notes between those two notes, you know. But he put them in and it fit just perfectly in time. And uh, it's, uh, it just gives you something to grab onto. Yeah, I talked to um, the guitarist, uh, Jake Eddy for this and he was saying that just when he thinks of Doc Watson he just thinks of the most perfect playing of bluegrass style guitar out of C positions like anybody plays in a C position now he thinks of Doc Watson because everybody's got a bit of Doc's influence in those shapes now yeah yeah Doc is uh, you know Doc Doc and uh, you know there's in, in bluegrass guitar playing the roots of it you have George Shuffler and Don Reno and Doc Watson, and uh, as far as lead playing, you know, and, and then the Clarence White comes along, and he kind of morphs it. And Tony Rice is kind of like the next extension of that. And Tony Rice was uh, kind of like, you know, a lot of people complain about fiddling and how it got, it all got homogenized with the Grand Old Opry and Arthur Smith, and everybody started playing like Arthur Smith, and it was like, oh, we don't hear the old kind of music anymore. And Tony Rice kind of did that with bluegrass guitar. It's kind of, that's what you hear. But if you unpeel a layer or two of that, Doc's in there too. He's kind of the basis of it. And uh, Shuffler and, and Don Reno are, are there too, but... Doc was very visible and very audible, you know, in, in those uh, 60s and early 70s. The, when, you know, when the Will of Circle Be Unbroken record came out, my friend and I uh, were at a party. It was, uh, I think, a New Year's Eve gathering. And I was probably about 1971 or two. I was probably 18. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I know this guy, Doc. I know who Doc Watson is, and I kind of know who Jimmy Martin and Roy Acuff were and that kind of thing, and Mabel Carter. And uh, my friend and I said, yeah, you got to play guitar about 20 years before you can get a tone like that. And that was like uh, we thought, you know, in a couple more years we'll be able to get that tone. <laughs> but it just doesn't happen. It's, uh, it's Doc's tone. But that's what you aspire to. That's what I aspire to. The, not only the the stuff that he played, but the tone he got and the just the clarity and the I don't know precision of the presentation. You know, is a is a beautiful sound. Yeah, I talked to Brian Sutton for this, and he sort of described it as like sort of the clarity of just hearing drops of water, just you know, these just clear, complete notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His his sound was. Uh, and, you know, I think playing electric uh, has a real role in that precision. When you play an electric, the extraneous noise is much louder. You know, it's just jarring. I know playing with the pickups, uh, my guitars and mandolins and fiddles really made me aware of that stuff. Getting sort of extraneous trash, kind of trying to leave it out and trying to be precise and... Uh, the I'm trying to think of the articulation of people like Doc Watson was what you'd aspire to. And uh, Doc played, you know, he played square dance tunes on electric guitar. 
So it was about getting that melody out and make people dance with the melody, which is what fiddle players do with just a melody and they don't need chords and that kind of thing. So he was doing that with a guitar. He's taken in a way, but when he's, when he started doing that, it would have been hard to do it and drive a dance with an acoustic guitar. I think, I think nowadays you could do it, but I think when he was doing it, it was, uh, having the Les Paul or whatever he was playing was probably really helpful. And, uh, but that refines your technique, you know, you, you really, you're louder and you, you have to pick and choose what you're going to send out there. You know, if you have a sensibility about it, you, you work on it, getting the tone. And that's really interesting actually, because sort of through his career in the, certainly the later years, he would play an acoustic guitar plugged in when a lot of other people would have just used mics. Um, yeah, and, and having had that that clarity in there made it very easy for him to do that, I guess. Well, what you heard on the record, records was had no pickups, and uh, that was what you aspired to, you know, when you played, and and what you what you liked about him. The, so I, the pickup sound was always kind of a compromise, but but Doc was not. That's one of the things. Another thing about him, obviously, he was not a purist. He. Uh, he was going to plug that guitar in and it was going to be loud enough for him to hear what he was doing. And there's a thing about that. If you have it loud enough, I think when you play at home and you're, and uh, you can hear everything really clearly in a quiet room, it's a lot different than playing on stage or playing in a rehearsal room or, you know, with a, other people around other musicians going against you or you're know, playing with you. It, it covers up stuff and that stuff is hard it's hard to get comfortable. Um, and doc knew that, you know, if I get loud enough, then I can hear to, he can play with the finesse that he needed to play, that he wanted to play with, uh, that the volume, uh, really helps you, you know, from, keeps you from overplaying over, you know, pushing too hard. And, uh, you know, Brian Sutton will talk about tension and playing, you know, and how it's, you know, you, you kind of want to play harder and harder to, when you're playing in a bluegrass band. And it just gets, you get to where you're, you're holding yourself back. And, uh, to be able to remember that is tough on the stage. So, so just having yourself louder helps a lot. So I, that's why I can say, uh, I think, you know, Doc learned how to play cleanly from playing loud. have much to add except that he was this uh gracious modest guy as as much of a hero as he was i think he knew that but he sh constantly shied away from it and uh he knew that he was a significant guy my my last meeting with him i actually called him up on the phone and it was uh, I had to sort of steal my, get my nerve up to, to sort of kind of invite myself to his house. Cause I was within striking distance and a number of times I passed by there and he'd been friendly to me and, uh, and things, but he hadn't, I hadn't seen him for a couple of years and he wasn't on the circuit as much. He wasn't not in as good a health. And I called him up and I said, uh, I just want to see how you're doing. And he said, uh, I don't, I don't know who you are. And his his daughter was there. Uh, Nancy said, "Oh, you know him. He's a fi that fiddle player from Merlefest." And he goes, "Oh, 
you're that fiddle player for Merlefest. And he, we both knew that wasn't enough information. But we talked for a little longer, and he started remembering, and he invited me up there. And he wanted to be a good mentor. Uh, you know, the people that loved his music, he loved playing music. But he knew I was kind of looking up to him, and I just wanted a little, you know, I just wanted a little one-on-one uh, -on -one time with him. Never had it, really, except for a few minutes here and there. And uh, we sat, the two of us, no one else, else was there, for about three hours and played and talked. And uh, I left there thinking he, he really, enjoy, I think he really enjoyed it. He liked being Doc Watson, in spite of his modesty. He knew he was something, something important, and he knew he was given something back there. And that's what he wanted to do, I think. All the young pickers that he befriended, you know, he, he really encouraged them. And I was lucky to be one of them. So that's, that's about all i got to say, <laughs> without going to tears. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I think about him. He's, he's such, such a really important figure uh, in, in my world, for sure. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collinsguitars.com and find out why.